Hey, I want you to grab uh, a Bible and go to 1 Corinthians 6. We're in a series in 1 Corinthians. And as you're kind of turning there, get something to take some notes with. Uh, let me just say this. It's really good to be back with you. I was away for a couple weeks and enjoyed some time off. Uh, spent some time with the kids. Got one move to Louisiana. I got to spend some time with my child in Indiana. And then also my child and his uh, family here in Ohio. So, But it's good to be back with you. Came back to an interesting week. Uh, apparently we have a bear roaming around Norton, so that's kind of cool. Uh, but more than that, we had our Bible camp here this last week. So that was exciting, man. Came back to that, almost 300 kids every night, just coming and being able to tell them about Jesus. The theme was making waves. Uh, so somehow making waves with the love of Jesus in our world. So excited about that. And then to run right into uh, 4th of July weekend where we celebrate our freedom. And one of the things I think about is this. I don't know if you think about this. We love our freedom. Like I would say this for Americans, freedom is one of our most important values, if not our most. Like if, if you were to take a poll, my guess would be that freedom would rank right up there. I'm grateful for our freedom. I'm sure you're grateful for our freedom. It is part of the fabric and foundation of our story. The very founding of our country was the pursuit of freedom. And I would say it is the fabric of our country. It's like the protection of our freedom. But we talked about something in another series that I just want to point out, that the celebration and the elevation of our country's freedom if we're honest, has evolved into something a little bit different. It many times has evolved into a demanding individualistic cry of freedom that has as its mantra, no one can or should be able to tell me what to do. Freedom has turned into, I'm free to express myself. I'm free to do what I want, how I want to do it, when I want to do it. So what's happened is our country's declaration of independence has evolved into a lot of individual declarations of independence. What has happened is over time, freedom from tyrants, which is what our country's history has evolved into this individual autonomy that accepts no restraints, accepts no constraints. It's this freedom of self-assertion, self-expression. It's this self-gratification. I'm free. And that very attitude can very easily begin to define our culture. Listen, whether on the right or the left, whether on the right or the left, and that attitude can very easily infiltrate the church. And it can begin to create what I would say is a very intoxicating atmosphere that leads to some toxic results. And that, guys, is what's happening in Corinth. In this church that everybody's been talking about, they're like, that's literally what's happening. Paul's writing to a church. I hear this all the time. Man, we just need to get back to the New Testament church. And I always wonder, like, which one? <laughs> because this church Paul's writing to, it's got problems. I, I heard a series on this one time, and they called the, the series on 1 Corinthians, Christians Gone Wild, right? That's kind of what's going on. I mean, they're dragging each other to court. You read this. There's polarization and division, and they have their favorite leader, and so they're dividing into camps. They're getting drunk on the communion wine. And it wafts into their view of sex. And so I've been away a few weeks, and I came back today, and my assignment is to talk to you about sex, 1 Corinthians 6. And I would just say this today is a little PG-13 because Corinth, the uh, church that this letter was written to in the city that it was written to, Corinth, was a very sexualized 
city. Uh, it is said, and I read in commentary, Corinth boasted hundreds of working prostitutes connected loosely with this cult of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. It was a prolific trading and shipping point connecting the Mediterranean region with the West. So it was full of sailors and merchants who were drinking and prostitution was rampant. And what happened is sex became intertwined with the pagan religions. So that what people would do is they'd go to the temples to make sacrifices to their gods. Whatever was left over from the sacrifice, they would throw a feast with. They would invite friends to it. And their job was to hire prostitutes for their friends. That's kind of the way they worshiped. And that sexual attitude wafted into the church. And Paul has to address it in 1 Corinthians 6. Paul addresses it. And quite frankly, guys, we need to address it. You know why? Because sex is addressing us. It's everywhere. We are a society that's saturated with sex. From music to movies to social media, commercials, we sell everything with sex from cologne to coffee. It's everywhere. And we are a sexually curious culture. We live in a culture that has idolized sex and sensuality that has somehow told us that unless you experience this, you're missing out on the most important thing, so to speak. And so Paul had to address it then, and we have to address it now, because this whole idea is addressing us. And so here's what he says. If you have a Bible, I want you to look at 1 Corinthians 6, because he begins by saying this. He's quoting to them something that they were saying. It's in quotations. Uh, they were saying, I have the right to do anything, you say. But not everything's beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I'll not be mastered by anything. I think the quotation marks actually would have gone there. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for, Paul says, sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then, look at this, shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? And then he says emphatically, never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? He's like being really graphic. He's like, y'all were practicing, like they, they were having sex and there was this free sex and they were uh, having sex with, and it wouldn't have been that uncommon in, the, in their sexualized city. And he says, do you not know that if you unite yourself with a prostitute, you're one with her in body? That'd have been four to them. For it is said, and he's quoting something, we're going to get to that, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. And then he says this, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Paul is addressing this idea of sex because culture's vision of sex had infiltrated the church. And what is happening is this, is the church had some mantras that they were using to justify their sexual ethic. And he addresses them. One of them was this. They were saying, I have the right to do anything. Even though everything might not be beneficial, I have the right to do anything 
but I'm not going to be mastered by any. It was this idea they were saying sexual freedom is a personal preference. Uh, this expression of sexual freedom is just this expression of an appetite that I'm trying to fill, which is what you find in the next thing. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. What Paul is doing here is he's addressing, these are things they are saying to justify their sexual ethic. And Paul wants them to know that culture has a vision for sex, and the church was then and is now buying into culture's vision for sex. And it is important for us to deconstruct culture's vision for sex and spirituality. In fact, if you're taking notes, I want you to write that down because I think that's what Paul does. Deconstructs culture's vision for sex and spirituality. Because just like then, our culture is selling us a commentary on sex. And it has a narrative, and that narrative, unfortunately, guys, can I just be honest with you? Unfortunately, that narrative that our culture has for sex is what many in the church who call themselves followers of Christ are embracing rather than God's vision for sex. Uh, some of the things that Paul says that I think are very prevalent today are this. If you're taking notes, write this down. Uh, what they were saying is this, I'm free to do what I want. I'm free. Uh, we did a, a series a while back, and we had a sermon on this, the whole idea of freedom. Uh, you remember uh, in the movie Frozen, remember how it goes, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Like there's this idea that I'm free. No one can tell me what to do. It's a matter of personal preference. I have the right to... And our country's celebration of freedom from tyranny has evolved in this demand for this individual expression of freedom to express and gratify it however I want. It shows up in all kinds of phraseology that we talked about several months ago. You do you. Follow your heart. Do what makes you happy. I'm free. But we said this, and it's important that we deconstruct this. The problem, this has problems. Do you know this has problems? It has some dilemmas not the least of which is our expression of freedom is really an act of bondage or it leads to an act of bondage. You're saying, Dan, what do you mean by that? Well, he is quoting them and he says, you think sex is just like this appetite that you're free to fill when you want, how you want. Like I can have sex with who I want, how I want, when I want, because it's like this appetite. It's kind of like the food's for the stomach, sex is for the body. That's what they were saying. So I'm free. And he's saying, that's how you're addressing it, and you're not as free as you think. Think about it. I'm free to eat whatever I want. You can't tell me what to eat. So, so stop telling me not to eat ice cream every night, not to eat cookies every night. I'm free. No one can tell me what to eat. I'm going to have ice cream for breakfast. I'm going to have cookies for lunch and cake for supper. And you can't tell me any different. And, 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 and that would be a true statement. You can't stop me. That's what I'm going to eat. But eventually what Paul is saying, you need to get this, is that my expression of freedom is actually an act of bondage. I'm not able to say no to the sweets. 
And that act of bondage will actually lead me into a bondage because what will happen is the consequences of me acting on my freedom, ice cream for breakfast, cookies for lunch, cake for supper, is gonna have a consequence that's gonna limit my freedom, the freedom to have a healthy life. See how that works? Like my body was not designed, was not designed for ice cream every morning, cookies every afternoon, and cake every night, and that's all I eat. Eventually, there's a consequence. And Paul is saying what is true for food is true for sex. That, that sex was designed by God. And this idea of freedom is only experienced when I operate in the design that God designed it for. The other thing that they were saying then, and that is very much a mantra now is sex is just physical. The idea then was, you know, sex is just this physical transaction or can we use modern day vernacular? We're just hooking up. It's just, it's just physical. And yet, here's what I know. I don't even need to make a case from scripture on this. You know that is not true. Like you know that sex is not just a physical activity. You know that. You're like, Dan, how do I know that? Well, here's how you know that. If sex was just a physical activity, let me ask you some really hard questions. If sex is just physical, then why in the world is sexual abuse so hard for people to heal from? I hear all kinds of things in my office all the time. If sex is just physical, why are acts like rape so devastating to those who are victimized by it? If sex is just physical, why is physical adultery so hard? It's not impossible, but so hard for a marriage to recover from. If sex is just physical, can I ask you a question? Why is it, why are people sexual regrets among some of their biggest regrets? Like, you know intuitively in your heart of hearts that sex is not just physical physical. Uh, Paul goes on to express this. He says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality before the Lord. They were saying, this is physical. And then he makes the case, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead. He'll raise us up also. Do you not know that your, mem your, your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I take the members of Christ? He says, literally, we're the hands and the feet of Jesus. Shall I take that and unite it with a prostitute? They were having sex with prostitutes. And they're like, and they're like well, what's this unite thing, Paul? We're not uniting. We're just having sex. It's just physical. And he's like, no, that word means to glue. That literally in the sexual activity, there is this uniting is what he's saying. There's this intertwining, this meshing that when pulled apart, takes part of you and leaves part of me. That's what he's saying. And it Results in this one flesh experience. That's what he's saying. The sex is way more than a physical act, but it is a co-mingling of personhood. He's saying, he's literally deconstructing. I'm free to do what I want. Not really. Sex is just a physical activity. No, it's not. <laughs> and you know that. You don't even need Paul to tell you that. You already know that intuitively. 
And then there's maybe one more thing that I think he has to, that following God is just spiritual. Like what, what they were saying is, well, sex is physical and we kind of gave God our heart. And, and that would have come uh, from much of the mindset of their day. That actually would have been, there's this philosopher called Plato and he kind of espoused this idea that our bodies are temporary and they're evil and their soul and our spirit, that's what's eternal and that's what really matters. And someday we'll be freed from these bodies. And so what they would do is they would compartmentalize their spiritual journey. We have our own modern version of this. I hear it all the time. Maybe you said it. That, that many of us like, I'll do whatever I want to do sexually God has my heart. And what Paul is saying is that that is a wrong view of spirituality, that compartmentalizing our spirituality is inconsistent theologically. It's saying that somehow God saves our disembodied souls, and that's not what the Bible teaches. What Paul talks about is the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead his body in bodily form. And that tells us that Jesus saves us, but he doesn't just save our disembodied souls, but he saves our souls and this body that carries around our souls. We can't compartmentalize our spirituality. That literally, that when he saves us, he's saying we are united with him and these bodies are the Lord's. And here's what I want you to know. Culture has a vision for sex. And I would say this, in our culture right now, there's this pendulum that our culture either idolizes it, you haven't experienced it, single adult, you're missing out on, right? Or it's minimized. It's just, we're just hooking up, no big deal. And here's what I want to tell you. You know this. Our culture's vision for sex isn't working. You know that. You know that. Just just look around you. For some of you, just you, you can say, I, that's my experience. And it isn't true. And because it isn't true, it's not loving. So what's the answer? That's why Paul's addressing this. And let me just listen. If you're a follower of Christ, lean in. The answer isn't to bash the culture. That's not our job, to bash the culture. But the answer isn't to demonize sex either. I think a lot of times the church, what it's done is it's demonized sex or minimized sex. There's this really interesting verse in Proverbs that I think is interesting. Will you read it with me? Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. But blessed is he who keeps the law. Uh, in the King James, it says, where there is no vision, the people perish, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. What he's saying is, where people don't have a revelation from God, where they don't know what God has to say, they just cast off restraint and do whatever they want. But blessed is he who keeps the law. What's the point? And I think it's why Paul's addressing this, is that a lot of people don't know what God has to say about sex. And so what they do is they cast off restraint. They have no vision from God for sex. So what they do is they, they, they perish. The point is this. I think we need to rediscover God's vision for sex. Did you know God has a vision for sex? Casting off restraint, running wild, and doing whatever they want describes the group of people here in Corinth, and I think it describes our modern culture when it comes to sex. 
The problem is people did not realize God has a vision for sex. And we need to rediscover, uncover God's vision, his revelation for sex. God has a word on sex. Guys, lean in. Too often the church known for what it's against instead of what it's for. God says yes to sex. God created sex. God made it something beautiful. It's a gift, and he has a vision for it. I meet with a lot of guys, and sometimes I'll ask them, where'd you learn about sex? Most of the guys I talk to, even guys who grew up in Christian homes and grew up maybe even going to church, tell me this, that they learned about sex in the locker room, that the locker room was their educator, their friends became their instructors. Maybe uh, it was through all kinds of, maybe their dad's playboy, and nowadays social media. And I would dare say gals are in the same boat. And what I want to do for the next few minutes is this. I don't want to delegate, relegate to the locker room, social media, Fifty Shades of Grey, whatever it is, wherever you're learning about sex, I don't want to delegate what God created to that. I want to retake it, retake it and address it in our homes and in our church. God has a vision for sex. That's what Paul does here. In 1 Corinthians 6, what he does here is he refers to the story of origins in the Bible to uncover the purpose and the vision and the design of sex. And the origin that he refers to is found in verse 16, for it is said, do you see it in your Bible? It is said the two will become one flesh. What is Paul referring to when he says it is said? Well, he's referring to the Bible's story of origins found in the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, let me just show you two passages. You don't need to turn there unless you want to. It's not a bad practice. But here's what it says. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image. This is the creation. So God creates the star, the moons, the, the heavens, the, the water, the birds, the, the animals, everything. And he says, let's make mankind. So that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock, all the wild animals, creatures, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. And then it says this in chapter 1. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Chapter 2 kind of fills it out in kind of poetic fashion. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So he created Adam, no suitable helper. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into deep sleep. While he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, and then he closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out a man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And this, right, right from the beginning, God's design is why a man leaves his father and mother and Remember this word, is united to his wife and they become what? One flesh. That sound familiar? So Adam and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. I, I think this is so fascinating that right from the beginning, we see God's vision for sex. God's vision for sex, write this down, no, no slide for it, was rooted in creation. Before there was ever sin, there was sex. 
When the church demonizes sex, they miss the point of the story of origins. Before there was ever sin, there was sex. God created this. He had this incredible vision for it. What is God's vision and his design for sex? Well, let's just write a couple things down. You got your pen ready? That, that we can take from what the Bible tells us about sex. First is this, God designed sex to be complementary. If, if God is the creator, as the Bible teaches, then think about this, he thought up sex. Just, 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 don't dwell too, but just think about that. He thought up the design, the function of it. Like th this whole thing, God thought up. The design of sex, the anatomy of sex, the, the function of sex. Right at the beginning, God designed man and woman equally but distinctly. We are complementary. We are complements of each other. We are different, and but not in many ways. But not the least of which is we complement each other sexually. We were made. I don't know how else to say this. We were made to fit one another. <laughs> he thought up the idea of gender. And his design for sex is for it to be complementary, a man and a woman. And he's very clear that any deviation from that is a deviation and a violation of his vision and design for sex. That God designed, created sex to be complementary, a man and a woman. Not only that, but he designed sex to be productive. Uh, verse 28 of Genesis 1, he blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Sex is how children are produced. Now, I don't know <laughs> if that's new news for you. I'm sorry you're hearing it online from an old-headed preacher. I'm, I, mean, I apologize for that. But it is one of the beautiful realities regarding sex. It makes me think of a story. A little girl came to her dad. <laughs> she said, she's kind of getting that age. She said, Daddy, where'd I come from? And man, he started to sweat. Right, he started to sweat and he took a big gulp and he's like, man, she asked me the question, where's her mom? And then he proceeded in, in detailed fashion to engage in the biological and anatomical uh, explanations to his little girl of where she came from. And she sat there listening and he's sweating and he's stumbling over his words. Like, oh man, is this so awkward. And after he got done, she looked up at him with her big brown eyes. She said, well, that's great, Daddy. She said, my friend Kathy said she came from New Jersey, and I just wondered where we came from. <laughs> Make sure you're answering the right question. But he says this, be fruitful and multiply. Sex creates family. It's under the protective banner of marriage and the marriage covenant. Children become this gift, and sex is what produces the family. God intended sex to make a family, to build a community. Not only is it productive, it cultivates intimacy. Uh, here's what he says in chapter 2. He says, verse 24, that's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. They become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, felt no shame. Uh, Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians 6. You have your Bibles open there. He says uh, the, 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 the whole idea of one flesh refers to this embodied personhood. Sex is designed to be more than procreative. It's designed to cultivate intimacy in this circle of security. 
Sex is about oneness and intimacy. There's something deeper than simply a physical event or a physical act that accompanies sex in God's vision for sex. Sex unites two people together in God's design as that two become one. And he says the husband will, will be united. Literally, the word is to hold fast, to like cling to her with loyalty and affection. They become one. I read a, a book about a decade ago that highlighted something that was just interesting, but I never forgot it. Kind of pulled it out and, and wrote some notes in here. In Genesis 4.1, you go check this. Here's what it says. It says, Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. Now, <clears throat> let's just... I think some of the ways the Bible says, let's just step back. I get the idea Adam wasn't just laying there, but that's different, right? But in the King James, here's what it says. I, this was interesting to me. It says this, that Adam knew his wife Eve and they conceived. Now, I grew up, when I grew up, King James Version, and there's nothing wrong, but it was, but, but that was the version that I had as a, as a kid. And I remember as a kid, we'd read stuff like that. Adam knew his wife Eve and they gave her, I'm like, that was weird to me. Cause I'm like, I don't ever want to know a girl. Like, like I, I don't, like, you know, if they have, is that what happens? You know, I knew Sally and what? You know, like it was very confusing. But as I got older, I obviously began to look at this. The word, the word for no, the word for the sexual reality that he's trying to express here, the Hebrew word, get ready. I've, I've shared this with the church here before. Get ready, is yada. Say it, yada, yeah. Seinfeld, right? He didn't come up with it. Yada. What he's saying is that word yada is the Hebrew word that he uses. And, and it wasn't just a filler. It, it was a word that meant two people who knew each other intimately. Now, I think almost, if I'm not mistaken, almost about 900 times in the Hebrew scriptures, it refers to an invitation for us to know God deeply and intimately and profoundly. What he's saying in Genesis 4 is that Adam knew he yada his wife. Sex was designed to promote togetherness, to cultivate intimacy. It wasn't simply meant to be a physical act, but it was something that cultivated this beautiful intimacy. Sex wasn't just designed to cultivate intimacy, but sex was designed to be selfless. As part of the husband-wife relationship where they are mutually submitting to each other, it's not a consumer transaction. I love uh, the way Tim Keller put this. He says, sex is designed to be a radical self-donation or giving of yourself to another, your spouse. I love that. Uh, when you read the scripture, go ahead and write this down. And the church sometimes misses this. God designed sex to be pleasurable. First of all, just, I don't even need to read any verses. I will in a second. But God designed it, right? So he thought up this idea. And he designed it to be pleasurable. Uh, when you read the scriptures, like, I don't know how familiar you are, but where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. But when we actually look at what God designed sex to be, we're like, really? In Proverbs 5, 8 and 19, it says, Let your wife be a fountain of blessing for you. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. She's a loving deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you always. You're like, are you reading the Bible? Yeah. May you always be captivated by her love. 
let me tell you something. God wants us to enjoy and be captivated by sex in our marriages. God says yes to sex. He gives the green light on sex. He wants it to be enjoyable. He created it. He made it to be pleasurable. And under the covering of his blessing and the covenant of love and commitment in marriage, godly sex is pleasurable. Which leads to this. It is designed to be exclusive. Uh Literally, it says in the book of Proverbs, the verses right before the ones I just read to you, drink water from your own well. Share your love only with your wife. Why spill, he's being very graphic here, spill the water of your springs in the streets having sex with just anyone. You should reserve it for yourselves. Never share it with strangers. It's meant to be exclusive. Uh, the idea that practice makes perfect is crazy. No husband and wife ever get together on their first night and say, hey, I'm glad we practiced with a lot of different people. No one ever does that. Which, which leads to the big statement, I think. And that's this. And I want you to write this down. That followers of Christ need to understand that God designed sex to be experienced in a marriage between one man and one woman. And all those words are important. The sex was designed, intended to always be experienced inside the boundaries of marriage. Full stop, period. There is no but what about. So he says, in this covenant of love and trust, because there's something beautiful in the security of the commitment and the promise. The custom would have been for a man and a woman on their wedding day to gather underneath of this thing called the hoopah, and then they would consummate their marriage and the Hoopa represented their new home forming, and you didn't venture outside of the hoopa, nor did you allow anything to encroach in the hoopa. <laughs> uh, the book of Hebrews says it this way: Marriage should be honored by all. Boy, think about that. God's design for marriage honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. That means nothing coming into it that isn't supposed to be there is for husband and wife and not enjoying what was meant for the marriage bed before I'm married. For God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. That's what he says. Uh, a, an illustration I've used many times, you've probably heard it many times, is the idea of fire in... My fireplace is romantic and it is functional. It's warm and it's beautiful, aesthetically pleasing because it's in my fireplace. But that same exact fire in the middle of my living room has devastating consequences. What God is saying is this, is that he designed created sex to be pleasurable, enjoyable, complimentary, selfless giving away of myself to my wife. If you're, you're a wife, to my husband, period. God has this design. He says yes to sex. And where there is no understanding of God's vision for sex, people just cast off restraint. But where there is, then there's application. And Paul gives us three. Can I just share them really quickly with you? First is this. That once I know God's vision for sex, then I'm going to flee all sexual immorality. 
That word that he uses in 1 Corinthians 6 when he says flee sexual immorality is the word pornea. We get our word pornography from that, pornea. But that word, here's what it means. Flee all sex, any sex, outside of the marriage covenant. Outside of God's vision for sex. That's what he's saying. I want to show you a couple things in this, and I want to give you some application. And then we'll be done. What he says is, he says, flee, flee anything that's outside of God's vision for sex. Flee it. He says, don't fight it. He doesn't say try to manage it. He doesn't try to say, don't cope with it. He says, run from it. If I'm a follower of Christ and I'm asking myself where the line is, I'm asking the wrong question. If I'm, if I'm a follower of Christ and I'm asking myself how far is too far, I'm probably asking the wrong question. I'm trying to manage and I'm trying to cope with what I'm supposed to be fleeing from. You see, I gotta recognize the power of sex and sexual temptation. And I think what Paul is maybe referencing here is two particular stories in the Old Testament. One was Joseph who was sold into slavery and he was working in Potiphar's home and Potiphar's wife, he was a handsome young man, comes to him and seduces him and she will not let up. And eventually he flees, leaves his coat and everything, just runs, hightails it out of there. And when you read Joseph's story, him fleeing sexual temptation made life harder for him immediately. But what it led to was greater blessing later. On the other hand, you read the Old Testament, there's the story of this guy named David, who as the king was on his rooftop, and as he's kind of looking over the city, he sees a beautiful woman bathing. And instead of fleeing and getting back in the house, Joseph ran from the house. David needed to get back in the house. He stayed and he stared. And because he stayed and he stared, it came at great pleasure at first that led to devastating cost later. You see, what Paul is saying is, flee, get out of there. Like, don't fight it, run. What does that mean for some of us? Well, for some of us, it means unfriending some of the people that we're communicating with on Facebook and social media. For others of us, it means erasing the contact. It means breaking off the relationship. For some of us, it's maybe breaking up with that guy or maybe breaking up with that guy. You're like, wow, right? He says, flee. For others of us, it's, it's moving out till we're married. For some of us, it's stop watching those movies that you're masturbating to and look for people who can help you and hold you accountable. For some of us, it's getting rid of the copy of Fifty Shades of Grey or he says, flee. He says, flee. Don't cast off God's vision. Embrace God's vision and deconstruct the narrative that our culture is selling us for sex. I don't think it's anything he says here. 
But he says, don't you know your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, who you have received from God? You are not your own, you're bought at a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. The application says honor God with your bodies. Let me tell you something, write this down. If you are a follower of Christ, listen to me, your body is not your own. That is the theological truth he's teaching. If you are a, I'm going to say it again, if you are a follower of Jesus, the theology of your body is this. God didn't save a disembodied soul. So now I can do whatever I want with my body. But it includes your body. And what he says is honor God with your body. We said in a series we just did, my body I give as an act of worship to him. When you say yes to Jesus, your body becomes part of the body of Christ. I think what he's saying here is decide ahead of time what honoring God with your body looks like and means. That's what You do this with your money, make a budget with your money. You decide ahead of time where your money's going to go, what it's going to do, what it's not going to do. You make decisions ahead of time so that in the heat of the moment you don't make a bad decision. I think what he's saying here is honor God with your body. Make a budget with your body. Singles. I think what he's saying is this. Be patient. I heard Andy Stanley say this one time, giving up something now for something better later is not a sacrifice, it's an investment. The Song of Solomon says this, promise me not to awaken love until the time is right. Godly sex is patient. And in this incredible love story and book in the Song of Solomon about lovemaking, you find that lovers don't awaken love until it's time. There are all kinds of imagery that points to a patient, protective posture. Be patient. Listen to what he says. Trust his vision for sex and sexuality and spirituality. Too many times we rouse love and awaken love before it's time. I think what that means is godly sex is patient and I want to make up my mind before I'm in the car with her. Before he takes you out on that walk, I'm going to decide what it means to honor God with my body. Married people, what, it, what does it mean to honor God with my body? We're going to talk a little bit about this next week. But I'm going to pursue God's gift of sexual intimacy. And then I'm going to protect it. Next week, I want to talk particularly to singles and married people because that's what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 7. I'm going to pursue it with my wife and I'm going to protect it. Some of you are thinking this, well, then that's all great, flee, honor, but I've already really screwed up, and I've shattered it. What do I do? I believe that you can experience healing. I love the fact that Jesus, when he walked the earth, here's what it says, God in the flesh was full of grace and truth both. And if I'm going to experience healing, I'm going to have to somehow confront the truth. You know what I think that means? I think that I'm going to repent from my sexual sin. The book of Proverbs says this, he who conceals his sins does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Uh, I won't heal from what I conceal. And so some, we need to find somebody that I can trust and talk to them and and begin to get in community where I can begin to find healing because I need to repent. I need to call it what God calls it. 
Because after I repent, I'm going to run into the grace of his forgiveness. God has a vision for sex. And our culture is addressing us. And it gives us a vision for sex. And it isn't working. And it isn't true. And it's not loving. But God has a vision for sex. And when I embrace God's vision for sex... It's part of what it means for me to trust God with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength. Will you pray with me? God, I am so grateful that you give us, you talk about real stuff, that you're frank, and you leave no will room, and yet we trust you. So God, I pray that you would help us in this area to trust you to trust your vision for sex. God, there are so many people that are struggling and hurting right now watching this because of maybe decisions that they've made or maybe uh, situations that they've experienced. And God, I just pray that you'd help them to, to repent if that's what needs to happen. Call it what you call it and run into your grace and forgiveness. God, I pray that you would help us to trust you, flee sexual immorality, and then to trust you and honor you with our bodies. Thank you for this word today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.